Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Apuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper on uh, Sunday, March 12th, 2023. Right. Coming up on St. Patrick's Day. Right. You bought the corned beef today. Yeah. I heard you got a good deal. That's what you told me. Yeah, I did get a good deal. Yeah. Thanks to the lady at the checkout. Well, it's, you know, it's you nice when that a happens. a coupon for me. So here's what I never understand. You've made the point to me that if you buy a brisket, it's highly expensive. I, you know, let's not go into that. I think we talk about that every year, okay? I don't, what, what's the, but let me finish no the thought. Answer. I don't want no. people to be confused, but if you buy the corned beef, it's not as expensive as the brisket. Yeah, brisket is uh, very expensive. Yeah. And you read articles saying, you know, you can make your own corned beef. Right. You buy the sodium nitrate and you cure the beef, you know, treat yeah. it yourself and so on. But it, it costs like 10 times as much. As buying whatever is in the packet, they call they call corned beef, which has already been cured or uh, processed or something. Right, doesn't make sense. So, so, uh, Who knows? so I just buy the package. Thing. Good work, you know, good work. I have a All new right. great recipe where I don't boil it. Yeah, I actually roast it in the oven. Oh, is that better? And it's kind of you know it's enclosed in foil. It's superb. All right, now I'm looking forward to it. It's superb. Are we having that on Friday? I was not a fan. I was never a fan of the uh, classical boiled oh. corned beef and cabbage dinner. I'm easy. But this is superb. All right, all right, all right. You don't want to blow your own horn. I know that's not no. what you want to so do. So I have to say happy birthday to Sherry, mm-hmm. my sister-in-law. Yeah, we're not saying how old she is? No, no it's a big one. Okay, But leave uh, it at that. And apparently it was a good one. Yes. Yesterday, Except there she were had, festivities. Yes, all right, good, good for her, good for her. Congratulations. Yeah. All right, so uh, we have a lot to talk about. We went to the theater this week. I'm not sure I have time to do this. What, what do you mean? Why? I got to get ready. Pepper is coming this oh, week. God, you know, the, you're going to talk about that I've, enough. I've got a lot. Pepper is going to dominate the podcast next week. I, I can hardly put, keep my put mind. Put the pepper thoughts off, okay? On my uh, concentrate. It's, Focus. It's it was, not easy. Tazi yesterday, pepper I, tomorrow. I don't think Pisces people are known for concentrating. Yeah, I'm. I'm a hundred percent behind that thought. That's I, so that's right. I'm behind the eight ball here. Yeah. Okay. That's why you got me. Um, we saw a play this week. Remember, think, think, think. We did. It was kind of funny. Wow. It was just like I came home for lunch, and all of a sudden we were. On the phone buying tickets and uh, scooting. That's the kind of couple we are. You know, we we you know we think and we do and we jump and next thing you know we're online to get through the Lincoln Tunnel. Once every twelve months we jump. Yeah, we think right. we do we jump. That's what we did. So there we were in a Broadway theater of all places, um, the Signature Theater in Manhattan, which is in Times Square. After I, after I bought you a lovely dinner, it's and, actually kind of a complex. Yeah. It's right on 42nd Street. Yeah, it's only a few years Not old. far from the Port Authority. Yeah. And um, there are several theaters there. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not, and it's not a, it's a very small theater, obviously. A traditional Broadway theater has 1,200 seats. This theater probably had 190 seats. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know that because there's a union rule about 200 seats. So you stay under 190, you stay under 200, save yourself some money uh, as a theater. And you don't have to hire union members. You don't have to hire X amount of union members. Oh. Okay? Okay. Um, so, uh, and, and, it, and there's really nothing for union members to do in this because this is a two-person play or two-and-a-half-person play, depending on how you want to count it. Uh, and it got a very good review in the Times, uh, which is in front of me. 
and it's how would you describe it? Maybe you can describe the play. What's it Did about? Did you give the, what? the name of the play? Yes, Letters from Max, a ritual. It's, that's the proper name. Okay, by oh, Sarah Rule. Come on, you know you're teasing this out of me. I'm giving you a chance I to have talk. To describe the. Yeah, I can do it if you're not no, up to go it. Go ahead and describe it. Okay, and then I'll critical. Okay, <laughs> that sounds like you. Sounds like I'm driving. Uh, Sarah Rule is the playwright. Uh, and she had, uh, was teaching, sounded like she was teaching at Yale, uh, and she had a student, uh, who was, she was impressed by, she found very affecting, and it turns out he was suffering from a terminal disease, a terminal cancer. And, uh, she became close to him, they exchanged correspondence, they met occasionally, uh, he was a poet, he wrote some very interesting poetry, she too dabbled in poetry, and they communicated back and forth in that fashion, uh, and uh, eventually he passed. I mean, that's that's the story. So it's their letters, actually their conversation, yes. her, her memory of their conversation. Their interactions. Right? The, some text messages. Right. It's not Star Wars. It's, uh, it's, it's very much just about these two people, uh, their relationship, and how they dealt with his uh, disease. Uh, and... Uh, it's uh, well. It's considering the afterlife. Sure, they weren't so much dis- um, dealt with his disease well, so much is, as his demise. Yes, they talked about it. They were hopeful. It, it became his demise. But the fact of the matter is that it's uh, it's a dialogue, uh, and it's theatrical to some degree. But uh, it's uh, very much um, two people talking. So you say two and a half because there was also a in this production, yeah, a piano player. Yes, well, they had the musical interludes, uh, and the and, way they and do, background. Yes, and, and the way they do the casting is that uh, there are two young men that alternate, uh, and the one who was in the production we saw, whose name is Zane Pais, um, he uh, played the played Max one night. While this other fellow, uh, Ben Edelman, was playing the piano on alternating nights, um, they switch. Ben Edelman plays Max, and Zane Pais plays the guitar. Okay? But that's a, you know, that's what I mean by a half. So, in any event, what did you think of the play? Well, I really enjoyed it. Good. And, of course, it, uh, it was one of those experiences where you're in a small theater where you're, you know, uh, 10 feet away from the actors and it was it was uh, intimate in many many ways mm-hmm. uh, physically and just the subject matter um, two people talking to each other uh, and it was very it was very well performed mm-hmm. very uh, believable uh, tell me again the woman Jessica Hecht Jessica, Jessica Hecht is, is a great actress yeah and she we've was, seen her in a bunch of things she was incredibly engaging mm-hmm. and believable mm-hmm. and uh, you wanted to be in her class or at least or maybe even get letters from her you mm-hmm. know and uh so it was um it, uh, the time sort of flew by really yeah uh, no it was it was uh it was good it was good but it, um it was poignant yeah very poignant uh, emotional um and uh, interesting, you know, I hate to, I hesitate to use the word uh, with someone intellectual. I think it's a fair statement. Yeah, I mean, this guy was obviously very bright, right? And uh, they're, you know, having a pretty existential conversation, right. and, and considering the afterlife, and 
and so on and so forth. And uh, and yet it's full of humor. Mm. Um, it's full of emotion. It was... Uh, yeah, he's pretty much out there. He's he, he's very creative, very smart, and he, his, his, he speaks through his poetry very much. Right. Uh, well, also, he styled himself a poet and comedian. He performed. Oh, that's right. Yes. He performed yeah. his poetry, but he, he, he you know, right. obviously he takes himself with a grain of salt in right. many ways. So it wasn't some pompous, right. you know, poetic. Uh, I don't know what to say. Situation. Yeah, it was. It was very uh, kind of. Yeah, but yeah, but he was uh, out there. I mean, um, I you know, I thought. It, she was tremendous. I mean, she grounded the whole show. She was keeping a dialogue with him, keeping a dialogue with the audience at the same time. It's interesting. The structure was just that. She was breaking yeah. the fourth wall all the time, talking forward and talking sideways to him. He was just talking to her. And it wasn't super metaphysical. Well, I don't know what you mean by super. Well, I mean, just uh, it was pretty down to earth. She would refer to... She was down to earth. She was down to earth. He was not down to earth. He was not down to earth. Okay. Okay. But she would refer to, you know, dealing with her children, Halloween costumes, et cetera. That's right. And uh, so it it was a very accessible conversation um, that uh, you, you kind of enjoyed being... A witness to right. or, or a part of. No, it's real people. I mean, she was the kind of person you felt like you could talk to forever. And him, not so much. Uh, well, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, which is not but negative. Also, but also, yeah. in the process, he ends up... Uh, you know, he has relationships. Yeah. He gets married right. in the hospital and so on. And uh, it was... Uh, anyway, we recommend it, but it's only got a limited run. But... Uh, you get a chance. Signature yeah, theater. especially if it's in another... It's the kind of thing I could see other being performed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's community uh, theater. All over the... Uh, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, grist for community country. theater. Sure. Yeah, so that was, that, was a, that was a fun adventure, even yeah. though we were stuck in uh, significant yeah. Lincoln Tunnel traffic, uh, which is nothing new. All right. All right. So you had... Uh, well, I'll let you just decide what order you want to approach this in. Yeah, so there's a, a great uh, article in the New York Times uh, yesterday, Saturday, about overdue letters. Overdue letters see the light at last. And it's a story of um, about 160,000 letters and hundreds of thousands of other documents in at least 19 languages that have been stored in, that have been in government storage in England for hundreds of years, okay? So what happened was uh, in, uh, during wars, British warship would, uh, I guess, take over an enemy or whatever. I don't know. I'm I'm not very articulate about war stuff. But anyway, um, they would end up uh, absconding uh, everything on the ship, right? And so I don't know what happened to, you know, the clothes, the gold, the, you know, the other niceties, but uh, all the paper documents were, uh, you know, Seized by the government uh, and uh, stored yeah. from the like 1650s right. so the, the, to the 19th century. Right. So, well, first of all, it's kind of strange that anybody kept this stuff, but they did. And I guess uh, it, it's as simple as one ship captures another and 
takes the uh, cargo, and the cargo includes mail. And uh, the mail, instead of being uh, tossed or thrown into the fire, is in many cases put in uh, some uh, trove of, uh, you know, stuff collected from uh, ship captains. So they have this stuff, and finally, after all this time, they're trying to do something with it. That is to say, digitize it, organize it, translate it. This is what happens. Make it available this to is what people. Happens when and you... it's fabulous stuff. Yeah. Okay, They're, for instance, they they quote um, a French a letter from a French seaman uh, in uh, 1745. Okay, who's writing back uh, to a certain Marie Anne Hote, and he says to her, "Like a gunner sets fire to his cannon, I want to set fire to your powder." Really? 1745. Well, isn't it kind of embarrassing that they're publishing these people's private uh, letters? No, it's fabulous. Uh, And that's one of the great things about it is they have all these letters, and uh, many of them are from everyday people. Yeah. And we don't have... We don't have that many letters from everyday the people. Idea of, the famous people, the, you save the letters. The yeah. rest of the world, they, they go in the trash. I understand, but they're going to... So how they going to do this? They're going to have thousands of letters. They're going to catalog this? We're going to know so much... Oh, my God. Well, it's a huge thing. Yeah. So they do give um, credit to several organizations that are... Foundations that are helping to fund this. I mean, it's just a huge, 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 yeah, huge Yeah, project. yeah, yeah. This is what happens I mean, when, you don't, when you don't clean out your attic for a bunch of years. Suddenly you got boxes of letters. I mean, this is going to be an incredible... Well, maybe some thing. foundation will want to organize and digitize uh, our paperwork. Oh, yeah. You know, and then they'll have a true picture of what life was like in the 20th slash 21st century. Oh, that's a, see, now I'm intrigued. That's anyway, it, it, you know, it's going to be great, uh, useful stuff to historians. All right, we'll have to see when it, where, it's, where it's finally, what form it finally I mean, there's takes. One, they, they show a picture of some documents that were seized from a boat traveling. Yeah. Um, an American tobacco ship in 1778. There's actually a little note that they have a photograph of in the Times. It says, written in 1777, this may certify, well... I won't go through the whole language, but it's a note um, from Joshua Dodge saying that the bearer of this letter, Jack Dodge, used to be his servant is now a free man yeah, well, and has the right to act for his himself and uh, his child. Yeah, the problem I mean, is that, 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 that was not delivered, so this did not work out, right? I don't, yeah, I, we also don't know what happened to Jack Dodge because right. he must have been on that Captured, boat. Captured, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, interestingly enough, and they have some photographs of all these old, you know, documents just been moldering yeah. in the basement for years. They have a picture of a uh, sailor's notebook mm. from the 17th century. That is like the 1600s. Yeah. That's the 1600s. That's an old notebook. Well, look, it's old stuff. The picture there is of somebody holding it in their hands. Right. Okay. So this is going to apparently create a firestorm of uh, comment uh, because yeah. people believe that you're not supposed to handle that stuff. That you're not supposed to handle right. letters with your bare hands. And is that the truth? And it turns out um, 
it couldn't be farther from the truth. Why is that? I mean, so I'm, I'm with these people. So there's another another article yeah. in, in the New York Times, and it starts out with mentioning, you know, there's that uh, Hebrew Bible that's going to be auctioned off. It's supposed to go for $50 million. Right. Okay. okay? And there's so. a picture right. of that with somebody holding right. it in their hands or uh, whatever. And um, they, the New York Times got tons of letters and comments saying, shame on him. You know, where are his gloves? But, but why wouldn't you need gloves? I don't quite get it. The best way, says Mark Dimunation of the Library of Congress, to handle a rare book is with clean hands and caution. Okay. Gloves reduce your sense of touch, increasing the likelihood that you might accidentally tear a page, smear pigments, dislodge loose fragments, or worse, drop the book. Okay. Uh, And whatever their associations are with cleanliness, they also tend to make hands sweat, generating moisture that can damage a page. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, apparently people who are in this business, in the yeah. rare book business, uh, end up getting besieged by you know people complaining mm-hmm. and uh, asking about and reprimanding it and so on about this uh, uh, white okay. glove thing. So I mean, it's... Uh, and it comes down to just uh, being careful. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, some things yeah. you want to wear a white glove. <laughs> yeah, like okay. If the book is made of ivory, right. or encased in some fancy cloth, uh, etc. They say the Lincoln Bible, which Barack Obama and Donald Trump used to swear their oath of office, is sometimes handled with gloves to avoid damage to the velvet binding right. well, okay if, if, I, if so, i'm elected president i'll keep and that you know in mind. And, and this is this is interesting i've done a little bit of archival research myself so i've touched some yeah. um fairly rare things and i i never did notice they don't they weren't making uh us uh, wear any gloves but just so you know next time you're handling a rare book yeah uh, you don't have you don't need to worry about the glove situation good so, the World Baseball Classic, Thompson, you've been wondering about. I've right. mentioned it. You're looking at me unknowingly like you don't know what the World Baseball Classic is. I, yeah, I, I, nor have I any desire to know what it is. But it comes up every year or two. It's, it's not a new really? thing. It's yeah. not a new thing? No. All these countries play. It's like uh, fake Olympics, okay? okay? All these countries put together baseball teams, and they compete. And it's kind of a pain in the butt for the major leagues because it's during spring training. So... Uh, the way it works is... But you're amused by who's playing for what Yeah, well, wait, wait, let's take a half step back. That's the question. I think Who, we can all guess how it works. How does it work? The different countries have teams. Yes, I know. But if we, if, if if the French team arrived from France and, and the team from the Dominican Republic arrived from the Dominican Republic, that would be straightforward. But there are many Americans who are of Dominican Republic heritage or French heritage, or Italian heritage, and by dint of their heritage, they're allowed to play for that country's team. Right. Well, you say, right, like it's obvious. It's not obvious to me. So what you have is a team, for example, you have the Italy team uh, who has... um, Who did I tell you? Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey is pitching for the... For Italy. Matt Harvey's probably never been to Italy. Right. I feel sorry for Italy. Well, yeah, that's true, too. But you know who the manager of of the Italy team is? Mike Piazza. 
Well, that makes some sense. He grew up in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, but Piazza, at least, you know. Got an Italian-sounding name. They're playing, they play the first game against Cuba. You know who plays for Cuba? I mean, rhetorical question. Giannis Cespedes plays for Cuba. Okay. Now, he's from Cuba, <laughs> but he hasn't played baseball for several years. Is this whole article just about Mets who play? Who are no, playing no, that's not the main point. The main point is about the Team Israel, okay? Okay. Team Israel, here's the thing. Team Israel, there are some players who actually come from Israel, uh, notably a fellow named Shlomo Lipetz, who's 44 years old, a, fo- a veteran pitcher from Tel Aviv. Doesn't throw that hard. He has inspired T-shirts that say Shlomo Motion. Slow motion. Slow motion. Get it? Okay. Yeah, I get it. Okay. That good Jewish sense of humor. So the point is, they have some, some players from Israel, but they too are filled with Americans who have some kind of Jewish heritage. All right? Okay. So the question they asked, slow motion, uh, if I can call him that, slow lipid, what he and the others, the Israelites, uh, think of this. And he said, look, it's bittersweet, referring to the team's reliance on Americans. But there is an old Hebrew saying, do you want to be the tail of a fox or the head of a turtle? (laughs) Let me give you that one again. Tail of a fox or head of a turtle. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, is it supposed to be obvious which I want to be? I mean, which do you want to be? I think... He's saying it like, well, we all would rather be the tail of a fox, you know. I think that's that's what they've got there by playing all these Americans. But uh, I don't know. Would you rather be the tail of a fox or head of a turtle? I'm going to really have to think about that. Well, that's the conundrum that's raised by the World Baseball Classic, all right? Tail of a fox or head of a turtle. Okay? I mean, I could understand it. if it, Do you want to be the tail of the fox or the tail of the turtle? No, or head of a turtle. I'm going to have to think about that. Okay, you understand. I'm going to have to ask a Hebrew. Uh, you don't have to expert. be Hebrew. You understand the head of a turtle. You're in charge, but you're in charge of a very slow thing. Whereas if you're the tail of a fox, you're moving around like you know nobody's business, but you're in the back. Well, baseball is kind of a slow thing. That's not the point. You know the point. You understand what I'm getting at, and what the Shlomo is getting. I wish at. I did. Yes, I think you do. All right, go to the story that I know you really want to talk about. Well, I can't. You, Why? You took away the paper. Did I? Yeah. Uh, the Valparaiso? I don't even know what you're talking The Valparaiso about. article. Yeah, I don't have it. Yes, you do. No, I don't. All right, well, you do. But in no, any event. I don't. I got. I, okay. I don't have any of the papers. All right, well, in any event, I'll look, but I, you don't even need it. The real point is this uh, Valparaiso is a school in Indiana who um, has an art museum. Yeah. And they have some big pieces in the art museum. Um, no, listen. Valparaiso University yeah, is I, having trouble. Yeah, they're right. in trouble. Their um, uh, admissions have gone down. What is it? Forty percent. They're down. Gone down. 40%. They're going in the toilet. All right. They're in yeah. trouble. Yeah. Um, so they're trying to figure right. out how to save. Right. They have to raise money. And they, how are they going to raise money? Well, no, 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 no. They, how they. They want to improve the school so people will be attracted to right, go there, right. right? And they've decided that uh, they need new dorms because mm-hmm. uh, one of their principal freshman dorms is, uh, you know, kind of a dump, doesn't even have air conditioning, you know, dates back to the 50s and 60s, right? So they need about $10 million to build some new dorms. And uh, 
they decided to do this by selling some artworks in their museum. Mm -hmm. So uh, this article is about a couple of people who are up in arms about Mm -hmm. this, especially one is a retired uh, professor of literature who said, you know, I used to use works in the museum, Mm -hmm. you know, to make points, to connect with, you know, the 19th century art with the 19th century literature and so on. And I know, you know, people rely on this museum to go there, take a breath, look, experience, etc. So that so that's his point of view. And uh, then there was there's also, you know, the former, you know, head of the museum who was there for many many years and uh, he is looking at it from the point of view of the original uh, bequest of the artworks of the museum um, and uh, you know and he doesn't think right. that this be. should all be happening right. so what I should say is they 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 have in mind to sell several works they could basically sell about four works they think and and raise ten million dollars right okay which sounds like a lot but uh, but but isn't there the article says there's a general rule that you don't sell the artworks in a, in a museum at, at a school that those those things aren't for sale you don't do it for the purpose of general funds right well yes yeah um, and this would be breaking that rule well you know it's not like it's a you know, federal law or something. Yeah. But typically, revenue from deaccession pieces should be used to acquire new exactly. works. Exactly. Not for operating costs. Exactly. So they're talking about, um, you know, building these dorms. Right. Uh, so that's a little problematic. Also, the artworks themselves. Now, um, one of the artworks. Uh, is by George O'Keefe. And that's the one that uh, they think will bring at least $7 million. Okay. Now, that was not a bequest. Right. You know, the bequest is what we worry about. Somebody gives something to the museum with the understanding that, you know, people are going to see this, that it's not going to be a fungible asset uh, of the university. Um, So this was actually bought with money from a bequest. Okay. So it's not part of... uh, somebody's original bequest. Uh, but the other pieces, I think, are that, we, that they're selling. The, the other pieces, you know, one's by Child of Sound, one is, um, oh, by Frederick Church, um, mm. actually. So, um, so that's one point, is, you know, what was, you know, is it even legal to... Yeah, forget the legal Sell stuff. Legal is the least interesting thing. Okay. I mean, do you just think, does it bother you that that they're not, they're, they're, that they're selling? Look at this, it's just assets. It's just so weird, isn't it? It's just you could see the trustees like walking around the museum and saying, "Well, gee, you know, we could just we could sell this one. We could get a new dorm. This one, maybe we could improve the chemistry department. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's shocking. And meanwhile, they're cutting back yeah. um, some of their arts. Um, Education, yeah, but but what, what's so special about the art facilities. assets? Why do why are the art art assets sort of uh, sacred? I mean, why why is it that you're not? What is the purpose of that rule? The notion that you only sell the art assets to further the art cause? Because their the purpose is to be in the museum. Yeah. Okay. The purpose is to be seen by the public. Mm-hmm. The, the museums are created to be the, the holder yeah. uh, of all these 
objects mm-hmm. so that it opens them up to everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay, as opposed to being in some rich. So it compromises the, so this is, the artistic yeah. mission. I mean, yeah. Okay. Um, so this is crazy. But on the other hand, yeah. uh, these uh, colleges and universities, some of them are in a terrible spot. Yeah. They're really, with enrollment uh, decreasing, right. uh, that's a problem. Expenses mm. increasing. Mm. Uh, you know, they're they're having a tough go of it. So you wonder, I mean, it's a mess. I really I worry about all these schools from all the ends. Oh. I don't know how they stay in business. Well, you know, so but, but you raised an interesting I, question to what? me. Was you said, I said, you know, they had a basketball team. They still have a basketball team. They made a splash in the NCAA. And you said years ago, NCAA, NCAA men's basketball tournament, March Madness, right. which is just about to start now. And you said to me, well, didn't that help the school? Why did that help the school? It's supposed to. And I said, yeah, I don't know what happened. It was just a few years ago. I looked it up. Right. Valparaiso's big splash in the tournament, 1998. Yeah. Okay. So it's 25 years the, ago. Puts them 20, on the map. Puts 20, them on the map. But it doesn't last for 25 years. So No, but go. what else happened? Didn't you? Didn't you say? No, that's it. Oh, okay. I, I thought you said that. Um, no, that's the, what I said. They had this. They had a run twenty-five years ago. It was a famous thing. The coach uh, and his son. That's why I made it so famous. Bryce Drew was the player. Homer Drew was the coach. Uh, Bryce Drew made a last-second shot that caused him to advance to the so-called Sweet Sixteen. It was a miracle victory. Great father-son thing. It was all over. One shining moment. It was a big, big deal. Homer Drew went to coach somewhere else. And, That's what I'm saying. And so the program slid, and Bryce Drew went to the pros. It puts them on the map yeah. for a moment. Uh, and it's just but then moment. everybody moves on. The right. players move on. Right. The coaches move on. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're in trouble again. maintain yeah. that notoriety. No, it's a big problem. It's also a problem. Everything about it is a problem, because we were also talking about uh, um, the professors, the instructors, yeah. and how... Um, there is there are fewer and fewer uh, full time tenured yeah well they uh, this is in so schools across the board yeah. are being paid Nothing. a few thousand dollars right. to teach these courses they can't afford to you know they don't make a living right. teaching well but, they, but so you're getting to a much at bigger all issue. ends yeah. of this educational spectrum there, is a mess there's not a lot of money to throw around here but anyway I, uh, times are tight for schools I, I do not uh, you're thinking they should probably. I know. So, I, I don't right? have any view on it. I don't have any view on it, honestly. I don't. I uh, I'm just curious exploring it. So I will tell you there was an article. You know, you had talked about the murals uh, that people objected to in previous weeks, uh, some uh, depicting slavery. Um, I forget where the latest one was, um, but they had some letters on that. Uh, I guess the article, the most recent article, talked about several murals that have been taken down in the United States, in which people have been criticizing. Uh, you know, even though the person who Painted the mural was anti-slavery, was a civil rights supporter, and uh, thought, and thought the, he was making a statement right. against slavery. Yes. And so now there, it was still taken down, or it's still being uh, shaded by drapes or whatever. One of the letters to the editor, uh, which are mostly saying that, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the guy's motivation was, but when you look at the mural itself it uh, has sort of a stereotypical caricatures of black characters and therefore right. it's yes. arguably objectionable well, we talked about that right that, but but here's the is, but the yeah. letter is written i'm just going to ask you i'm putting a spot by a woman named Teresa mcnichol who is described as an art historian in cranberry new jersey 
I don't know her. Okay. I don't know her. You would think you would know her. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a big town. No. No. So there you go. I just, as long as you're revisiting. Yeah. Yeah. Old things. Yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to go back to um, the conversation with we had with David about uh, the article about uh, you know people having some say mm. in the vice presidential yeah, right. candidate when a um, especially when you know there's some because the president is older mm-hmm. or or whatever yeah um, it seems like a delicate question and. You said you, you looked at that article again and found uh, kind of an interesting well, yeah. discussion of FDR. Well, first of all, the only example of this happening uh, and a vice president being shown this, being chosen this way is FDR. Okay. It's it's not, you, um, it's very specific and it was the FDR situation. So the, the, the article was saying that people, you know, perhaps people should have a say in yeah. rather than the when candidate have, choosing right. a um, vice president just because he yeah. likes them. You know, the, the, it's almost, and, and what FDR did in mm-hmm. uh, 1947, I suppose, uh, is he said, you know, something, uh, I understand that I have substantial health issues. Uh, and uh, there's going to be some concern of who the vice president is. The convention should just choose that person. I'm not going to choose that person because maybe you're choosing your next president. He really did that. Yeah. And they chose Harry Truman, and that's exactly what came to pass. Yeah. Uh, and the astonishing thing is he did describe himself as an older man. Yes, and he was, as uh, we were shocked to find out, 63 years old. Uh. <laughs> 63 years old, and of course Biden so perhaps is— perhaps if you're 86. Yeah. Biden is in his eighties. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's yeah. I forget if he's eighty two now, and he'll be eighty six at the end of whatever it is. He's, he's well. But he's probably going to say, "But I'm in great health." Yes. Uh, well, so it's a different thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know what he's going to say, and he's not bound by that precedent. But it's shocking to think that, and and of course, FDR had serious health problems besides. But it's shocking to think that the the issue was so prominent that FDR had to take that step, and he was only sixty three years old. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to come back on Biden. He's going to have to figure something out. Um. Okay, uh, toy kitchens. Uh, we don't have to say anything about this except uh, we've well, got at one. Pepper. Re- well, what pa- I can talk about Hazi. Pepper has an amazing kitchen. Yeah, it was gifted to her um, by you know a, a neighbor. neighbor. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. done with she it. She loves it, and it's huge, yeah. and it has all kinds of uh, gizmos yeah. and all kinds of plastic food. It's mostly plastic. She, mm-hmm. she has a little bit of. Wooden food, yeah, but uh, but she know, loves to I play find there. The, pl- the wooden food problematic. Why? Yeah, you know, I I think it's easier to pretend with plastic food. The wooden food, you know, Hazi has a wooden hamburger set, yeah, or something like that. And uh, I always find it ungainly to mm. imagine or to even pretend to be eating this. Is there's like a wooden right roll. With a wooden well, look. The real point is meat they both love this. Piece of Hazi will sit down. Both them, you know, one to girl, one to boy, uh, will sit down and uh, start setting the table, and start uh, well, and, putting and out food yeah. and, and, and planning and a meal. New things. Yes, yes. they and love to do it. They love so this kitchen. Apparently, scene. they're not alone. Yeah, well, that's what we learned. That's what we learned. Now, now the article about is uh, the article is about something that goes a little bit diverges from the main point that they're not alone. And the article is about the fact that. Uh, you know, they're trying to represent different cultures and there are more exotic foods and there are tacos and there are sushis. And this is a way yeah, for people not, of different yeah. ethnicities to see for their children to appreciate 
and to have their food represented, and they might have an interest in that food. As... Wooden sushi sounds fun, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. No, no it doesn't. But it's funny that there is sushi. And uh, um, they, what I thought was there were a couple of funny things. And, you know, one is that the, this one kid's playing with sushi, and so now he's really interested in sushi, yeah. and he wants to try sushi. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. But uh, up, up in Canada, yeah. a mother bought uh, her uh, daughter a set that had. Uh, a pretend avocado. Yeah. And her daughter ended up wanting to taste an avocado. Her mother had never tasted an avocado. Which is weird. So they both tasted an avocado for the first time together. Yeah. And they just said the daughter liked it. Yeah. It's a mother. <laughs> well, but I, I don't see this happening with Hazi and uh, Pepper. I don't even see them making the connection. I mean, Pepper is kind of limited in terms of the food she eats. She's not taking the clues from the kitchen. And Hazi will eat everything anyway. So I don't, I don't think they work that way. Maybe they're too young. I yeah, know. I don't know if they connect uh, the idea that pretend eating is anything to well, do with real eating. It's social, though. I know that when he he also in his in his hamburger set, yeah, he had felt French fries. Yeah, I thought I don't Those like are that. Gross. Yeah, they're gross, and I think he's going to he, eat them. He, he put them in his mouth. He put them in his mouth a lot. Yeah, I'd be much more comfortable with right. plastic French fries yeah, that yeah, you could yeah. wash right. off. All right. So we have uh, several uh, interesting people who passed away. Uh, the first one was this fellow I pointed out who seemed to be a graphic artist. Is that a fair description? Uh, yeah. David Goines in California, a hippie, and really. Maker. Yeah. yeah, he's a hippie. No, I mean he was he, he was a very uh, individualistic guy. Um, he he was actually. At one, he was the boyfriend. He, he had a relationship with Alice Waters. Yeah. So that's why he made a, you know, he made uh, uh, posters, uh, etc. for Chez Panisse mm-hmm. all these years. He's famous for that and, and kind of a um, Art Nouveau, Art Deco. Yeah, aesthetic. Uh, amalgamation. Yeah, they're, they're impressive um, posters. And uh, but she describes him as you know he would uh, dress up he had a certain way of talking he he wore a dark suit carried a pocket watch and a bo- he wore a bowler hat yeah I mean he was really a character but this sounds like a yeah. hate Ashbury thing I could see that entirely you know I can get it well they're out in Berkeley though oh it's close enough okay <laughs> so so anyway he he was an interesting guy and he was he. One thing that's interesting, well, his mom was a calligrapher. Oh, okay. Caught yourself there. Yeah, calligrapher. There you go. And uh, and, with a C, uh, yeah. And and she, he was taught by her and inspired by her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he considered himself uh, as a printmaker an artisan. You know, yeah, he, I know. He made a he distinction. He, he didn't like to be called an artist. He, an he, artist. He said he is, uh, you know, uh, creating uh, objects, a craftsman. Um, he he describes himself as a competent technician. I give value for value. I'm an honest workman. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, uh, I don't understand that distinction entirely, but fine. Anyway, this is kind of interesting stuff. And, and I've seen those posters around uh one in particular, that bicycle poster, the Velo poster. Um, so he's kind of interesting. Yeah, the, and also the one, the 1991 Persian Gulf War. Yeah. No war poster. It's right. quite uh, dramatic. And I, but I've seen and, that before, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great poster. All right. So a couple people passed away, just passing quickly. Uh, Joseph Zuccaro, 69, who's Mr. Beef in Chicago, inspired FX's The Bear. Okay? So The Bear, which we, which we thought was great, 
uh, takes it's a place television series. Television series takes place uh, pretty much in a restaurant called Original Beef of Chicago Land. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out it's patterned on a restaurant called Mr. Beef, and uh, Mr. Beef was owned by this fellow Joseph Sequero, who passed away. Was uh, very successful. Um, they made the um, Mr. Beef sandwich, uh, thinly sliced roast beef. I can't pronounce this word. Jardiniera. Jardiniera. and roasted peppers piled on a sandwich roll and drizzled That's with the beef juice. Vegetables. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. And apparently uh, the connection's made because uh, Joseph Zucchero's son was a friend of the guy who became the showrunner for The Bear. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, the, the two of them used to hang out there. The restaurant was successful. Hollywood people used to come. Jay Leno used to come, mm-hmm. even though it was Chicago. And uh, they recreated uh, very carefully uh, this restaurant on a, on a set in California to film the series. He went and visited it. So I thought that was interesting. Also, uh, Robert Blake passed away. You remember Robert Blake? Yeah. Uh, And I had vaguely remembered that uh, Robert Blake was uh, accused of killing his wife. Do you recall that? Yeah. It didn't make an impression on me. He had a complicated life. Yeah. So I'm not going to go into his complicated life. I will say that the Times, in just a, a paragraph or two, pretty much tells you that he killed his wife. Uh, that, that's what the obituary right. says. All right. Maybe they know something I don't. Uh, but here's a connection that, that you may not recall. Um, his big TV show um, was Beretta. Beretta was actually the continuation of a show called Toma. This I tried to nail down. I'm finally nailing it down now. Uh, but Toma was very successful last night on season half because the star of it just quit. The star of it was Tony Masante. Do you remember who Tony Masanti is? He is, uh, he was the owner of a house that we rented on Block Island. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's who that was. So that was our connection. Yeah. Very nice house. <laughs> Six degrees separation yeah. from Robert. That's Frank. only three degrees. And then finally, Chaim Topol died. Now, Chaim Topol was known in this country as Topol. Uh, and famously was the star of the movie of Fiddler on the Roof. He played Tevya. And the movie was a very successful movie. Was best picture and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, and he's he's associated with that role. He played it many times on stage, uh, primarily after the movie. Uh, although he did other things besides, uh, an Israeli actor. And what's very interesting is how he got that role. Uh, and I never heard the whole story on this. So obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, you, you will recall The Fiddle on the Roof was a tremendously successful Broadway play. Right. Starring Zero Mostel. Right. Okay. When it came time to uh, make the movie, uh, by that time, Zero Mostel was uh, causing some negative press about the play. And I remember this because he was doing, he was bored. So he would do a lot of shtick on the Broadway stage. They quoted here. He would say something like, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Finkelstein, why are you yawning? I mean, it's, you know, someone in the audience, that kind of stuff. And he would, he would play little gags. And, uh, you know, he was a tough guy, Zero Mustel. It was hard to really corral Zero Mustel. He couldn't manage Zero Mustel. So when it came time to make the movie, he was interested in being in the movie. I wasn't clear on this, but Mustel wanted to be in the movie. And he was in other movies, as you know. He was in Funny Thing, Happened on the Way to the Forum. Uh, but there were others who wanted the part, and this is very interesting to me. The other candidates who were uh, prominent for that part were Rod Steiger, 
Danny Kaye <laughs> and Frank Sinatra. Oh, no. No. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and they actually say in the Times, uh, uh, you know, a candidate that can only be contemplated with great difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> and, For sure. And, and Topol's sure. story was that Topol was a young man. I would like to see Frank's uh, audition tape. Yeah, I- it's out there, I'm sure. So, in any event, uh, Topol was a guy who was uh, he had become familiar with with uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, he was in his 20s, and he saw it in uh, New York with Mostel, and he really didn't like it because Mostel was acting out the way I just described. He thought it was disrespectful, and somehow he, when he came back to Israel, he was persuaded to uh, take over the Israeli production. First, as an understudy, then he took the lead, and he was in his 20s. Hmm. And he had to work on aging through the part. And then based on that, he got the uh, the chance to do the show in London. And London was kind of a bigger deal than doing it in Israel. And again, when he showed up for the audition, they said, you must be the wrong guy. He was 29 years old. And they said, no, no this, this is me. And uh, he got the part and he got tremendous reviews in London. And so now he's in his early 30s. And then they decided to make the movie. And Norman Jewison is directing the movie. And he's got, he has to choose between all these celebrities. And he says, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. I like Topol. I'm going to take the, the 29-year-old, mm-hmm. which drove everybody crazy. Yeah. But uh, he played this older character and he made it work. And then, of course, people ask him, did he ever get tired of doing it? And he said, no, it's a great part. And, and he closes with something I've heard about Fiddler a long time. He said, I did Fiddler uh, thinking this is a story about the Jewish people. But now I've been performing all over the world. And the great thing is, wherever I've been, India, Japan, England, Greece, Egypt, people come up to me after the show and say, this is our story as well. So, all right. So, uh, there we go. Yeah, I wish I could chat with you some more, but as I said, I've got a lot on my plate this week. (laughs) Well, all right. Getting ready for pepper? Yes, I'm getting ready for pepper. Pepperoni. Pepperoni's coming. Hazi right, yesterday, so pepper tomorrow. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. Hopefully we'll be back. We'll be back next week, probably with Pepper sitting right here. <laughs>